0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale
1: University. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers, where we provide you with up-to-date information on cancer care and research. Our host, Dr. Anise Chagpar, is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. She interviews some of the nation's leading oncologists and cancer specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. If you are interested in past editions of Yale Cancer Center Answers, all of the shows are posted on the Yale Cancer Center website at yalecancercenter.org. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can contact the doctors directly. The address is canceranswers at yale.edu. Here's Dr. Chagpar.
2: Welcome to another episode of Yale Cancer Center Answers. I'm Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined by my guest, Maura Harrigan. Mora is a registered dietitian and nutritionist for Smilo Cancer Hospital Survivorship Clinic and a research associate at Yale School of Public Health. She's here with me today to talk about healthy eating for women diagnosed with breast cancer as this is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Thank you so much for joining me, Maura.
0: It's a pleasure to be here.
2: So Maura, let's t- start talking about diet and cancer in general because, you know, it's such a common question that we get asked. Did what I eat cause my cancer? Now that I've had cancer, what am I allowed to eat or not? Does cancer Is cancer fed by sugars or fats or other things? How do you deal with all of that?
0: Anise, uh, you hit right on the biggest issue in survivorship. For me and people who come to Survivorship Clinic, their concern is about food, and it almost translates into a fear of food because they're not quite sure what the relationship between what they eat and what caused their cancer. So they start second-guessing everything and start seeking out information, which is a good thing. Unfortunately, there's a lot of bad information out there. So people tend to get very confused. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what I do at survivorship clinic is help them sort through that information
2: so I think one of the big, the big questions, and in fact, I got asked this by a patient just last week, is does sugar cause cancer?
0: That's a very common question. And the short answer is no. And that's usually when someone gives a big sigh of relief.
2: <laughs> so th- but, but then Mora goes on to say, but that doesn't mean that you can consume all of the candy bars that you want because October is also Halloween month <laughs> and everybody has leftover chocolate and candy.
0: A big problem. Uh, so uh, sugar does not cause cancer. However, there is too, typically too much added sugar in the American diet. So we tend to eat too much that's just not good for our overall health. So I do explain that sugar does have a healthy place in the diet. And I actually frame it up for people and say, if you look at food labels, the nutrition facts labels. Sugar is listed there, but it's listed in grams, which I always say is code, because no one understands, at least Americans, what grams are. So I cap it about 30 grams a day. Of
2: total sugar?
0: Of of total added sugar. And I try to differentiate between what's added sugar and what's naturally occurring sugar, because right now the food labels don't differentiate between the two. But they're they, going to. They will, which is going to be a huge improvement. So about 30 grams of added sugars, which translates to about 7 teaspoons. You know, 1 teaspoon is about 4 grams. So just that knowledge and going and looking. When they go back home and look in their cabinets and start looking at labels, there are a lot of aha moments Mm -hmm. when people realize, wow, there's a lot of added sugars in certain products, and those are the ones you want to weed out of your eating.
2: So, Maura, you know, I started this big health kick recently, um, thanks to my brother. Um, And so I started drinking, like, fruit and vegetable juices and and going
0: vegan and cashew milk. Is that a good thing? It is. It's an excellent thing. It doesn't have—it doesn't mean it's for everybody. right. So um, so when people say, do I need to cut out red meat,
2: do I need to go vegan, do I need to get all organic, do I need to be non-GMO in order to reduce my risk of developing cancer, what do you say?
0: I say none of that is necessary. Right. So there's a lot of very good, healthy middle ground. Now, a lot depends on a person's own health beliefs. If they want to go a little further and maybe a little more into vegan, um, that's great. You have to do it wisely and make sure that you're getting all your nutrients. But it doesn't have to be that, uh, I, we wouldn't want to use the word extreme, but for some w- people it is extreme. Right. So there's a lot of healthy middle ground. And I do promote what I call is a predominantly plant-based diet. Meaning when, if you visualize it, if you look at your plate, two-thirds of your plate are filled with foods that come from plants and one-third comes from animals. So it's not necessarily vegetarian but it's pretty close right so here's my question going
2: back to the the sugars and the added sugars so right now the label just says sugar and so if you get you know a fruit and vegetable juice and it's all fruits and vegetables and it says no added sugars but when you look at the sugar label like there can be 26 grams of of sugar in there is that, like, that's going to eat up your nearly
0: 30 grams. Right. Okay. That was a good colonies. So that's, um, what you just picked out was a product that you would think is pretty nutritious, but in essence is a very high sugar product when it's, when it's a liquid um, and it's predominantly fruit-based. That acts uh, pretty active as a sugar in the body. Now, what I try to do is right above that sugar listing on the label is fiber. Mm-hmm. So you always want to look to see if there's any fiber in the product because the fiber tends to offset the sugar So to a certain degree. So you want to see at least 3 grams of fiber in the product. That's That's what's defined as a high-fiber food. So you always compare grams of sugar to grams of fiber. So if you see in that product... There's 28 grams of sugar and zero fiber. I'd put that back on the shelf. I'd rather you go eat a whole apple and uh, eat some whole broccoli because then you're getting the fiber. Oftentimes in those liquid products, the fiber's removed. So um, some of this juicing that people do, you have sometimes that extracts the fiber, which is really you're taking one of the most um, potent parts of the food out. What if you took fruits and vegetables, and you put them into
2: a blender. So it really wasn't that you were juicing. Do you still get all of the fiber, or does
0: the blending process get rid of the fiber part? No, the the fiber stays in with blending. It's the juicing that extracts the fiber, where you get the pulp that you remove. That I don't recommend. Got it. (laughs) <laughs> so
2: we're gonna eat a predominantly plant-based diet. We're going to make sure that the added sugars are less than thirty grams a day, and that most of what we eat—at least the stuff that has a label on it—has at least three grams of fiber. Correct. What about the stuff that doesn't have a label on it? Like you go and you pick up a sweet potato, and you it like, and you think that's starchy, but does that have fiber? Or what about an apple? Does that have fiber? I mean, or a piece of chicken. Like, how do you know how much fiber is in things that don't have a
0: label? That's a great question. Fiber only occurs in plant foods. Hmm. So look at it that way. So that that sweet potato you picked up, beautiful. Chock full of fiber, chock full of beta-carotene, virtually fat-free. It's one of Mother Nature's gifts to us. So any plant food has the fiber. The animal products do not. So getting back to sweet potato, doesn't matter how you eat
2: it. I mean, sweet potatoes are great, but some of us like sweet potato fries. So if we cut up a sweet potato and you cook it in a particular way, are certain cooking ways better or worse, particularly for cancer patients? So, for example, if you deep fry your sweet potato fries, presumably that's
0: a little bit worse than if you baked it. Is that right? That's correct. So there there are two different issues there in terms of cooking techniques for a cancer patient. One is when you're frying something, you're adding fat, right? And the type of oil or the type of fat that you use matters. So again, you want to go towards a heart-healthy fat, let's say an olive oil, a canola oil, and stay away from saturated fats. So the type of fat matters and the amount of fat matters, and that's really all about just supporting heart health and also a healthy body weight, because adding fat is adding a very concentrated source of calories. Now, the other issue of cooking that matters to cancer patients really has to do with cooking at high temperatures, particularly meats. So if you're barbecuing and you char a meat, some people love that part of it. That's the part we discourage um, people to eat because um, that has um, actually carcinogens in it, in the charred pieces of the meat.
2: Hmm. So avoid barbecue season (laughs) or keep to the salad part instead of the charred chicken. (laughs) Exactly. Got it. So what about fat? I mean, now that we're talking about fat, how important is fat for a cancer patient? I mean, on the one hand, people say, well, you need to get fats. There are these essential fatty acids and everybody needs fats and avocados are really good for you and hummus is really good for you. But then on the other hand, you hear, well, you don't really want fats because it's a concentrated way of getting calories. And the other thing that cancer patients often face is, is gaining weight a good thing or a bad thing after you've had a cancer diagnosis? Because maybe fats are good because then you can gain weight, or is that not what we're supposed to do?
0: Oh, that's a. There are about 10 questions in that I question. I know. <laughs> I'm sorry.
2: I got so enthusiastic.
0: Let me see if I could sort through that. Um, we do need fat in our diet. As you said, essential nutrients are only in fat sources. And also a key... Um, Omega-3 fatty acid, which is showing a lot of promise in terms of um, helping with uh, cancer prevention. So we do need fat in the diet, but you're right. It is a very concentrated source of calories. So any foods that are predominantly fat need to be used in very small amounts, very judiciously. So, um, for example, one gram of fat gives you nine calories, but a gram of carbohydrate gives you four. So in terms of weight management, yes, it matters how much fat you're adding to your foods because it is a very concentrated source. So it has a place, but it's um, in small amounts. So how much fat should we be eating and how do we know whether that fat is,
2: quote, good fat with all of these essential fatty acids and omega-3s and all of that or not so good fat? Like, you know, the label talks about saturated fats and trans fats, and then there's unsaturated fats, and then there's monounsaturated. Like, how do we figure that out?
0: I know you really almost need a chemistry course to understand the food labels there. But let's go back to that original model of looking at your plate as mostly plant foods, uh, two-thirds of your plate plant foods, one-third animal products. And if you put your food in that proportion, your fat – Um, distribution falls into just the right pattern. So the fats that come from plant foods are the fats we want to promote, the monounsaturated fats, the polyunsaturated fats. It's the animal products that contain the saturated fats. So if you put your food in the right proportion of plant versus animal, you'll get the right fat distribution. So, but wait a minute, wait a minute. (laughs)
2: What, where does the occasional chocolate, you know, creme, whatever, or the, you know, the potato chips or the, you know, the things that aren't plants and aren't animals. The things that are in the middle of the grocery store that all of the dietitians
0: tell us not to go near. Uh, that brings me to my, what I call my 80-20 rule. Okay. All right. So 80% of the time you want to be on your A-game eating this predominantly plant-based diet, having using meat as a condiment, keeping your foods whole and close to the ground, colorful, high in fiber. And then that other 20% are your discretionary calories, and that's what pl- applies to all those foods. And that's something different for everybody. So there's a place for those foods, but the majority of your time, and I'd say about 80%, you're on your A game, and it allows you that 20% of discretionary Calories, which helps you kind of stay with the 80%. Got it. So so really, in terms
2: of the fats, you're going to go with this distribution of two-thirds plant-based fats and one-third coming from animals. Um, and I get the whole idea of the
0: plate, but does it matter how big the plate is? <laughs> yes, it does matter. That's a good question. Um, uh, portion sizes matter. And often it's job one. And as um, a typical American diet, our portion sizes are way out of whack. So reining them in again, looking at labels when when they're there, and seeing what a portion size is, and honoring that is often a big aha moment for people. Yeah, because
2: some of us think that the portion size they 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 toned that down. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Those are really those are really meant to be followed. Um, oftentimes, um, people come to survivorship clinic, and they'll be eating fairly well and exercising, and they'll say, but you know, I'm really not losing weight, and I need to lose a little more weight. And our strategy is just cut your portion sizes across the board by a quarter. And then that's just what they need to enable the weight loss. Got it.
2: So this brings me to this whole other can of worms that we started to open, which was weight. We know that there is this thing called an ideal body weight, and some of us have an idea of where we should be, or at least what we feel comfortable being. And there are all kinds of calculators that can tell us what an ideal body weight is. First question. How good are those calculators that give us an idea of what an ideal body weight is, like this whole BMI? Does that fit? Should we aim for somewhere in that normal BMI category, or is that not really right? Because some people say that BMI doesn't really matter, that people can have a huge BMI and still be really healthy.
0: Yes, I I would agree with that. BMI is very difficult to use on an individual basis. It has its role in, let's say, research, looking at populations and trends. But when it comes down to an individual, it's not a tool that I use. Because a BMI uh, just technically just measures, uh, is a frame of reference of someone's weight in relation to their height. But it doesn't account for their frame or their distribution of muscle. So you could have a very muscular athlete who has a very high BMI, but is very fit and healthy. So the BMI doesn't always apply. So how do, I mean, how do people and cancer survivors figure out
2: what their right weight should be? I mean, because I'll tell you, my mom was just diagnosed with cancer last year. And, you know, she kind of says, well, now I have, I have a reason to be overweight. And I, I don't know if that's right. Is that right? I kind of think it's an excuse. Maybe I'm too hard on my mom. I'm
0: much nicer to my patients. (laughs) You're very nice to your patients, Anise. Yes, you know, sometimes people um, after a cancer diagnosis will kind of say, well, what's the point? You know, why should I even eat well? Why should I bother to exercise? Um, And, um, you know, I already got cancer, so why bother? And... We encounter this a lot in survivorship clinic, and my response to that is eating well and exercising and being at a healthy weight always serves you well uh, in terms of heart health and just in terms of overall being and strength and emotional health. So it's important to take care of yourself, Mm -hmm. and eating well helps you feel better.
2: Right. And the thing is that these days with breast cancer, being so well-treated— People are living long and healthy lives, and so it's really important, right, that they stay at whatever an ideal body weight is. But that brings us to the question of how does an individual figure out what that is for them without coming to you and having some fancy test done?
0: It's difficult to evaluate just to say you should weigh this much Mm -hmm. because you really have to look at it in the context of the person. And also what I like to look at is their weight history, Okay. So if we're applying it to, let's say, cancer patients, one thing you always want to know is during treatment, what happened to their weight? What was their weight when they started? What was their weight at the end of the treatment? What was the weight change? So um, some people lose weight. Uh, Sometimes it can be a lot of weight, and then that needs to be replenished once the treatment is done. If we're talking specifically, specifically about breast cancer patients, they tend to gain weight during treatment. And Which su- is
2: something that a lot of people don't realize.
0: Right, and they're very surprised by it, uh, dismayed by it yeah. greatly, but also frustrated when they realize that it increases their risk for recurrence. Mm-hmm. So um, our goal in survivorship and also in the research studies we do at the School of Public Health is to try to get nutrition and exercise and healthy lifestyles started right at diagnosis so that we can prevent this weight gain that occurs with breast cancer uh, women.
2: So that brings us to a really good point, too, which is no matter where you start, right? You may start as being overweight. Uh, You may start as being at your ideal weight. But really trying to watch what you eat and exercise during that treatment trajectory, particularly for breast cancer where you're more at risk of gaining weight, is really important. So what do you suggest for patients? Let's say they're, they start overweight, and I'm giving you that example because that happens to be the American norm. Uh, certainly was the case for my mom. Um, what should she be doing? Uh, If you were to advise her and say, you started off overweight, you want to make sure that you don't gain too much more weight, Uh, you want to get, if you can, uh, down to even lower than you started, how do you do that? It's incredibly frustrating for people and especially for cancer survivors who have just gone through radiation and now they're tired and, you
0: know, they just, (laughs) Yes, uh, it is overwhelming and frustrating, but a couple of issues there. When eating is also about being nourished and giving your body the nutrients that it needs, and that's the focus, particularly during treatment, that you get as many nutrients in as you can and so that you feel nourished and you're giving your body the tools it needs to uh, get through treatment and minimize side effects. So you want to nourish the body first and foremost. Getting to weight management, this is the tricky part of it because women start at different weights um, at diagnosis. Some women are obese. Some women are overweight. Some women are at a healthy weight. They all can be at risk for gaining weight during treatment. So one way to manage, you want to manage that weight gain Mm -hmm. and minimize it Um, while you're nourishing the body. And the way to do that really is through walking. So you have to add that piece to it. So nourishing your body through choosing nutrient-dense foods, walking, that's like a double-barreled effect of really bolstering your, um, your immune system during treatment and minimizing side effects. Once you get through treatment and, let's say, there's weight loss to be had, here's where it gets a little tough. Your body doesn't like to lose weight.
2: Yeah, I know. I've been talking to my body about that.
0: (laughs) It's very reluctant to lose weight. So it doesn't, but here's the good news. It doesn't take much weight loss to reap the medical benefits of a weight loss. So no matter, you really have to just start from where you're at and say, okay, from here, uh, a weight loss of even... 2% or 5% reaps the medical benefits in terms of heart health, your body's not going to really willingly give up any more than 10%. So let's say for a 200-pound woman, that's 20 pounds. And she does that through healthy eating, increased walking, loses the 10%, gets to 180, and feels fabulous. And just say, okay, this is where my body's at and so she's reaped the benefits of the weight loss. She's nourished. She's toned and feels great.
2: And so part of that, I think, is setting realistic expectations.
0: Absolutely. And that's, a, that's always job one for me uh, in terms of talking with women about managing their weight because, let's face it, we're really up against a uh, society of um, unrealistic expectations of body types for women. Yeah. And we look at it every day. And we're like, who are those women? And why don't I look like that? Um, Most women don't. And also there's a whole industry of dieting, which has done women a great disservice, always making us feel that we should look differently and that we have to eat in a very restricted and um, uh, difficult way. So trying to undo that mentality is uh, part of my work. Right.
2: And so, Maura, the other thing is that when we were talking about weight loss, and you mentioned that eating nutritious, nutrient-dense foods, and walking. Walking was one of the power couples to this double-barreled effect that you were talking about. But a lot of people say that walking, I mean, it's not really where the calorie burn comes from, that 80% of weight loss is your diet and only 20% comes from exercise. So how much... How much weight, no pun intended, do you put on the walking piece?
0: I, They're equal to me. Hmm. They're equal. Healthy eating and exercise are forever linked, and that's another concept to get across to women, that healthy weight management is about eating well and moving more. You can't separate the two. They go hand in hand. Okay, so you can't just say, I'm going to you know, give up the
2: Oreos, but I'm going to sit on the couch. Or I'm going to run five miles, but I'm going to eat 10 gallons of ice cream.
0: Correct. You really have to realize that healthy eating and your activity are really intertwined, and you have to align your eating with your activity. Uh, And once you match that up, it has a synergistic effect. And it's a joy to watch women experience that. yeah. And once they get it, they say, "Wow, I look at food differently." Um, I, you know I fill my plate with plant foods. I choose colorful plant foods. That's another aspect of getting all your phytonutrients in. So I, I, I fill my plate with colorful plant foods. I eat smaller amounts of meat. I walk more than I ever have. I feel great. Oh, and by the way, I lost weight. Yeah. And I love the fact that it's an oh, by the way.
2: Yes. Um, So final question, and I know that you probably get this a lot too. Many cancer patients are going to ask about supplements. Do I take a multivitamin? Do I eat supplements? Do, what's up with this EGCG green tea extract thing in terms of losing weight? Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? What about soy? Am I supposed to avoid that or eat that? And what if it's in a little bit of soy sauce at the Chinese restaurant? Is that a big
0: deal? How do you advise people about all of that? That's a big question, and let's see if we could sort through it Uh First of all, again, back to this plant-versus-animal model. If you're filling your plate predominantly with plant foods, and I just mentioned before, the colors, I know, again, this sounds simplistic, but the science behind it is robust. But remember, food is visual. So I think think colors, think the, what makes the color are the phytonutrients in, in the plant foods and different groupings of these hundreds of phytonutrients impart the color. So when you eat by color and, and include these colors in your week... You capture all of these phytonutrients and vitamins and minerals. This is Mother Nature at her best. You cannot replicate that in a pill Mm. because all those nutrients and phytonutrients, vitamins, minerals are in foods in concert with each other where they support each other's absorption and utilization in the body, whereas you extract one of those items and put it in a pill and you take that pill thinking you're replicating that. You're not. So... Mother Nature does it best. And the American Cancer Society, the World Cancer Research Fund, American Institute for Cancer Research, uh, all have come out with statements saying, do not use supplements to prevent cancer. Great. Because you know, what you don't realize, one, supplements are not regulated by the FDA, and two, they're not necessarily benign. They can interact with the medications that you're taking. Uh, so we discourage the use of supplements, except in very select cases where it's more to replace a deficiency. Right. Um, that's different. Correcting a deficiency is different from saying, oh, more is better. Right. So so for
2: example, if your doctor tells you you need to take calcium and vitamin D because so many women are vitamin D deficient, that's okay. Exactly. But It's also good to get your vitamin D and calcium from milk and milk-based
0: products. Exactly. Got it. And it's better absorbed from the food. Excellent. And you get your vitamin D while you're out walking. There you go, (laughs) enjoying the
2: sunshine. Well, thank you so much, Maura, for joining me on this edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers. This has been a wonderful discussion about healthy eating and breast cancer in honor of Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Um, Please beware, when you are left with the leftovers from Halloween, remember this podcast. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar wishing everyone a healthy and happy tomorrow.
1: This has been another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers. We hope that you have learned something new and meaningful. If you have questions, go to YaleCancerCenter.org for more information about cancer and the resources available to you. We hope that you will join us again for another discussion on the progress being made here and around the world in the fight against cancer.